Sequence is loading. Would you like to squeeze my nose? No, no, no. You've been more than kind. Relax. Denny Craig. All right, everybody. Walk and love. I strayed with Wendy. You beg Wendy. Your cow? Get up! From Forest Rain Studios, the home of Boston-Legal.org, you're connected to Boston Illegal, here and now. It's a story of cows, clowns, courage, criminals, and the imitable Mayor Crane. It's Saturday, November 12th, just a few days after the Boston Legal Tuesdays. I'm Dana Greenlee, and you're listening to Boston Illegal. That's the unofficial weekly audio experience of Boston Legal, which is the David E. Kelly-produced show that airs on ABC in the United States, courtesy of 20th Century Fox, and of course, the talented people over at David E. Kelly Productions. Uh, today's Boston Legal Radio is essentially a conversation about the seventh episode of season two, Truly, Madly, Deeply. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably got it right from the front page of boston-legal.org or maybe at one of the several portals that we're in, iTunes, Odeo.com, and podcast.yahoo.com. With me now, back again from the trenches playing basketball last week. We missed you, Kyle. Hey, good to be back again. Sorry, we had a little bit of scheduling conflict last week or else I would have been here. Real life invades. It did. <laughs> but you did well in the basketball tournament. We did. And Rob, my husband, pitched in and filled in for you. So, uh, yes, thank you. He's em- it's empty now. He's down in California. I'm sitting up here. And I'm talking to you over in Florida. Yes, that's where I am. Weather report is? Oh, warm, hot. It's November and it feels like August. <laughs> Bummer. Well, in Seattle, cold and rainy and dark. <laughs> <laughs> We want to remind everybody how they can reach us. Would you mind sharing that phone number and email for me? Sure. The phone number to call and drop a line for us is 1-800-986-8290. Call anytime. That's toll-free in the United States. Or you can email us at bostonillegal at gmail.com. Great. And just a note, if you do want to contact us, especially if you're going to make a voicemail, we'd love to have you call. We'll, we will use your voicemail on the show. We'll do it again at the end of the show. But... Let's hear from some people that like the show. For some reason, they're not so inclined to call. I'm getting the what we heard last week, some of the very negative feedback, I think, after Witches of Mass Destruction, the mil- anti-military folk. Anti-war. Um, anti-war folk, thank you. And, uh, and then this week, I don't know, for some reason, I had a bunch of calls that were kind of had some problem or issue they wanted to get off their chest, and some good ones. But let's hear from the people who like the show and what you liked about it, or your favorite character, or people you'd like to see come on the show. Just get some ideas. Just a quick rundown of what we're about to start, but you're going to hear, first of all, a deconstruction of Truly, Madly, Deeply. Then we'll listen a little bit to next week's episode. We have a soundbite for that. Then we have a special conversation with Diana Mayoko. She spoke and had an interview with Phil Neal. He's the editor of, or one of the editors of Boston Legal. And she spent some time down at Raleigh Studios and on the set and got to meet some of the cast. And she shares her thoughts on what Phil had to say about working on the episodes. Then we'll revisit our parallel universe. That's Trek in the courtroom. Some similarities between Boston Legal and Star Trek. We'll merge into some Boston Legal news of the week, and then we'll take your calls and your emails. Kyle, why don't you share with us sort of the rundown of our deconstruction? 
All right. As always, we're going to take it storyline by storyline. We're going to talk about Alan, Brad, and Zozo the Clown. We'll touch on Dwight Biddle and his forbidden love, <laughs> Denny not defending Ronald Jeffel, the balcony scene, and my good, bad, and the ugly to close. Always good and bad. and We missed it last <laughs> week. <laughs> I'm sorry. Give us a little review of who were the creatives behind this episode. All right. This episode, Truly Madly Deeply, was directed by Stephen Craig, written by David E. Kelly. And the director of photography on this episode was James Bagdonis, who, interestingly enough, directed Which is of Mass Destruction, which was the episode that aired last week. I guess they're multitasking. <laughs> right. Well, they have a very versatile crew over at Boston Legal. We said we're going to first jump into talking about Alan and Brad and Zozo the Clown in that case. But I first want to say the very opening shot, which is usually some sort of uh, Boston skyline. Yeah, a landmark of some sort. Yeah, it showed a Boston Harbor and a boat sailing away from the camera named Justice. That's fitting. <laughs> it was cute. The premise behind our first case, Alan, Brad, and Zozo the Clown, was a t TV station was looking to offload the 13-year employee, Zozo the Clown, because he was getting a little, um, he was taking a lot of our license on what he was lecturing about instead of being funny. But Kyle, why don't you tell us a little bit about the problem that arises from this case? Well, Alan has a little fear of clowns. A I little? Looked, I looked it up. Yeah, I did some research about it. Apparently, the, the term is cholrophobia. Say that again. Cholrophobia. Oh, I'm okay. not sure if I'm saying it right. C-O-U-L-R-O-P-H-O-B-I-A. Mm -hmm. Fear of clowns. Oh, good. It's so, like Schadenfreude. We are learning things. Right. We are learning things. Boston Legal is a very informational show. It is. There was, I think we've said this before in the past leading up to this episode, but there was an interview that Spader did on Conan where he talked about being fascinated of a, about this documentary saw where one woman was deathly afraid of clowns. And so you just wonder about who talks to what person and how that enters into the storyline. Right. Shall we start it out with a soundbite? Let's hear it. This is after Alan and Brad have been to court and Brad belatedly realizes there's a reason why Alan can't quite speak in court. They're coming back to the office. How can anybody be afraid of a clown? Keep your voice down. Now his testimony goes uncontested. You could have crossed. I didn't prep a cross. What's going on? He's afraid of clowns. I am not. It was strategy. Hey. Any calls? Not really. Afraid of clowns, huh? <laughs> Yeah, Brad in his booming voice, basically the whole office hears about this fear. <laughs> but it was strategy. <laughs> I mean, he's trying to cover his tracks there. No, I know, it's true. Yeah, but it's too late. By the time it's gotten around, by the time he goes and see Denny in jail, and Denny knows, somehow. <laughs> oh, that's right, <laughs> Denny in jail. And we must point out, because I think several people have gotten this wrong, is that the shoving match that you heard but didn't see in that soundbite was instigated by Mr. Alan Shore. He shoved Brad. Brad shoved Alan. Shirley shoved Brad. <laughs> that was the order. <laughs> Brad doesn't actually instigate these things. <laughs> no, he just finishes them. Yeah, that's right. I think he's still feeling the pain of Sugar Ray Schmidt who hit him in the back. <laughs> Let's move on to the actual court case because that, as amusing as the side situation is, there is... An interesting controversy always is some kind of interesting controversy. And maybe after you listen to this clip, you know, you wonder, is, is there more of this environmental issue that, you know, has arisen from the salmon and finding Nemo and continues throughout this episode as well? 
So we're going to hear now from Zozo the Clown, who's giving his testimony in court. Mr. Rogers, Sesame Street, Thomas the Tank Engine, the Magic School Bus, so you name it. All the top children's entertainers are educators. You never said he'd be in Galston. Always in public. But, Mr. Barron, why global warming? Mainly because it's possibly the number one threat to this planet, and our country's doing almost nothing. Can you do the cross? Uh, even so, uh, none of this seems funny, and you're a clown. Global warming could result in a rising sea level that could make a huge part of the world uninhabitable. We as Americans have a responsibility. The U.S. makes up 4% of the world's population. But we produce 25% of the carbon dioxide pollution, most of any country. The United States is the leading cause of global warming. We need to take a leading role in finding the solution. The clown's nose. It was a nice touch at the end. It was, I actually heard, uh, I think we had a caller, I don't know if I'm going to play it at the end, that contested a lot of those facts. It would be interesting to know if that were, if, I'm sure they must be researched. You know, well, how, yeah, but then you could always, there's always people like Brad who said it's fuzzy math. Fuzzy math, I know it. Well, there's I, always skeptics when it's something like that. Yeah, throw out, depending on what your side is, you can reinterpret the stats. Right. In fact, I was just going to go over here and look at footnotetv.com, and this is a researcher that analyzes the issues and brings out uh, specific fallacies if some of the facts aren't wrong, and he always does every Boston Legal. I'm pausing here while I take a look. And indeed, I met footnotetv.com, and Stephen Lee, who writes that and is a great researcher and an attorney, has dissected the episode for its facts and figures, and he does talk about, regarding global warming, a general consensus among scientists is that higher concentrations of greenhouse gases are leading to a rise in temperature, which in turn is leading to worsen air pollution, damaged crops, etc., etc., etc. And he does have some stats and figures, and actually a quote from George Bush, and linking to an online speech where he talks about this. So. A lot of information. He also has um, some facts and figures about bestiality, which we'll catch on a little bit later. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, another one about um, a Supreme Court's landmark 1963 decision in Gideon versus Wainwright about indigent defendants charged with felony crimes entitled to legal representation provided by the government. And, of course, that will be touched on in the Denny and Jessel case. But back to Zozo. (laughs) Well, Marshall Stepko, which is actually the client of Crane Pool and Schmidt, he is the television station owner, uh, gets up on the stand to present his case. We just heard from Zozo. Now it's Stepko's turn. And while you listen to this, kind of keep in mind, listen, he's talking as a station owner about ratings and people not finding the show funny enough and, you know, they need to, to bring in different talent. And just kind of marry that up to what you may have or may not have heard between ABC and David E. Kelly. <laughs> There may be some uh, subtext going on here. It's a children's show, for God's sake. He's a clown, and he's waxing on about the end of the world. Did you talk to him? Over and over and over. He said he had a social responsibility. My God, we had viewers clicking over to Aaron Brown for a laugh. Our show became preachy, unfunny. Ratings started to reflect it, and we simply had to get a new clown. Zozo talked about 9-11. Yes, to help children cope. The Columbine shootings? Many times he discussed tragic current events. So, you're firing him for discussing serious subject matter when he's done so in the past with your approval. There's a line. 
telling our viewers the planet is about to become extinct crosses it. After he told the kids to ask their parents about hybrid cars, that's when he got fired, wasn't it? This has nothing to do with hybrid. WKNW is owned by an oil and gas company. Nothing to do with our parent company. He wasn't funny. We needed a funny clown. <laughs> we needed funny. <laughs> now, storyline aside, Kyle... What do you think about this? I mean, we brought in some new young cast members to Boston Legal. It's a little, maybe it's a little jab at ABC. <laughs> we lost some cast. We got some cast. I don't, I don't think ABC's ever had too much of an influence on J.D. Kelly's writing, but maybe his casting. I don't know. Maybe. Do you don't think that they maybe offer um, network notes that say tone down the environment, tone down the, you know, the talk about our commander in chief? Yeah, maybe it could be. I, mean, I, I got to figure though, if they were, what would it be if, if they weren't? Because <laughs> I mean, he pretty much talks about it every week. So if, if they are, you know, trying to keep a lid on it, what would it be like if he had unrestricted access to whatever he w- wanted to say? Well, we'd all hear about it, wouldn't we? <laughs> no, we wouldn't. <laughs> no, I don't know. This fear of clowns that Alan Shore has brings up an interesting reaction to, with Brad, don't you think? Yeah. Well, Brad's not. Brad's not one to like weakness, and I think he's really uh, curious as to why Alan would be afraid of clowns in the first place. He does kind of make it his personal mission to, you know, make Alan stand and deliver and deal with this this fear. You're, this is very right on when you said he doesn't like weakness. No, he doesn't, and it's interesting to see two people who traditionally have been rivals in this firm on the show. And uh, Brad actually does a really nice thing for Alan this episode. I mean, it's a little bit of tough love, but he wants him to get over his fear of clowns. It was a good friend of mine wrote me and said, you know, in this episode, Brad and Alan, they don't work for each other. They don't work at each other. <laughs> they work with each other. Yeah, they change. do. And that's nice to see. Here's a little um, conference that they had after leaving court for a while between Brad and Alan. Why are you afraid of clowns? Really? Because they're evil. And it simply isn't right for parents to tell their children to just trust them. So, did a clown ever do anything to you? No! They're just evil. Alan, you need to close. First, you have a better grip on this whole global warming issue, which I tend to dismiss as... Fuzzy math. And second, at some point, every man, even the half-evolved kind, needs to confront his fears. You need to stand up and deliver this closing. Will the clown be there? Oh, poor, poor Alan. <laughs> I was inspired. It was, it was a nice speech. You can hear the cowering in Alan as he kind of, he diminishes himself. You know, he's very, he gets very small and hunched. And it's perfect, actually, portrayal. He doesn't, doesn't even want to look at the clown in the, in the courtroom either. Clowns are evil. And has to walk behind Brad and their client on the other side <laughs> rather than just get out on his side, which is the side the clown's on. That's right. That's right. And of course, at the end of, of the closing, which we'll hear the next he has to make everybody move down. You know, Brad and the client move down a chair so that he can take the third chair. He doesn't chair. want to pass by the clown for fear of wetting himself. <laughs> and, of course, I'm like to my husband, Brad is finally in the first chair. Because he's always in the second chair, and I don't yeah. understand that. Brad should be in first chair. But it was only because <laughs> Alan was cowering. All right, well, as we just alluded to, it's time to hear a partial 
a closing of Alan, and uh, he's he's still not he's trying he's not as forceful as we've heard him in recent weeks with his impassioned plea about the the war and such. There's hesitancy. I mean, there's a point where he actually raises his voice, but mostly it's it's pretty quiet. I could be wrong, but a clown's main job is to be funny. Global warming is not. Your Honor, the Arctic polar ice cap is declining at the rate of 9% per decade. We're talking about a rising sea level that could wipe out huge pieces of the world's landmass. More importantly, us. Massachusetts, California, our coastlines. That simply isn't funny. Unless, of course, you live in Nevada. Don't get me wrong. Millions of Americans go to sleep at night praying that the nation's number one clown will finally start caring about global warming. But this is a children's entertainment show. Okay, we're cutting him off right there because... <laughs> well, because he's he, we have to make a point of saying the nation's number one clown. <laughs> you know, I didn't even catch that until I started getting the emails. <laughs> I didn't yeah. even catch that. But no, the people that were in support of President Bush caught that and told me so. <laughs> he finishes his closing and he, like we said, he kind of cowers back to his chair. And when all is said and done, the judge, which was Jamie Atkinson, the um, woman judge that's been on there several times before, renders the verdict, which is actually for Crane Polenschmidt, the TV station owner, is allowed to do as he needs to with his employees, going to have to settle. But the drama does not end with that. The drama never ends. No. Okay, then. Let's go home. Alan. You have to do this. You're 44 years old. Tell him you're a fan. Shake his hand. Will you go with me? Right by your side. Mr. Zozo, I, uh, I just wanted to say how much I've always enjoyed your work. Thank you. Would you like to squeeze my nose? No, no, no. You've been more than kind. Alan. Well, perhaps one little squeeze. Judge Atkinson kind of rolls her eyes and shakes her head at that one. Oh, Alan's made a big step. Yeah. He seems perfectly fine by the balcony scene. He's very proud of himself. That's all Brad's doing, too. (laughs) Well, it was pretty funny when Brad uh, says, you know, I'll be right by your side, slaps him on the the arm, and then promptly walks away, (laughs) (laughs) watches from afar. And and you see Spader acting out, you know, he's doing his Alan Shore thing where he's all hunchy, and he goes like, he extends his hand like, What? What? Where are you going? <laughs> it was really well, it's cute. something that Alan needed to accomplish on his own. And like you said, by the end of the by the, by the end of the episode, he was pretty much okay with it. Yeah, you're right. Deep end. It was kind of like push him in the nine foot level of the right. pool. Oh wait, I can't swim. That actually brings us to the end of that particular storyline. But it seemed a good place to just jump in and, and introduce one little new cast member that's there for at least a, a couple episodes, right? Yes, that Alan's would be new assistant. 
Yes. And what's her name? Melissa. Ha. Melissa, who got the job, which we aren't going to hear about, by just basically being the prettiest in the lineup. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there wasn't much to pick from. It was pretty much her or nobody else. I know. And Judging by at least on Alan's scale Alan, of how he picks assistants. Oh, Alan's scale. <laughs> yeah. So she does pop in earlier when Brad and Alan are having a conference strategy meeting about the case and interrupts them. Excuse me. Could I steal Alan for one second? We're in a meeting, Melissa. Oh, yeah. It's it's just... I started thinking. I, I think the high of getting the job kind of... It just hit me. Um, the criterion on which I was hired. And now that I am hired, I just thought that I should be clear. I will not be objectified. I will not be ogled. If I am, I write you up. No, no touching, no, no double entendres, no, no comments on what I'm wearing. If I get any of that, I write you up. I'm your assistant, not your subordinate. You cross that line, I... I write you up. Follow the rules. We should we should get along fine. <sighs> That's all. I told you to interview. I think Melissa has been talking to Nora from last season. So. You know, the sweater rating girl. <laughs> <laughs> she was prepared. No nonsense. She's not going to say. Well, she also she said no double entendres. I don't think Alan's ever used a double entendre in his life. He's pretty much up front with his. His sexual harassment. That's a good point. <laughs> well, she's actually going to be on next, as we alluded to next episode. Uh, I don't know how they're going to get around this not being <laughs> some just form of sexual harassment, but we'll just leave that to everybody's. It's a recurring theme in the, in the series. People like Alan and Denny, you can't not touch on sexual yeah. harassment now and then. You have to create these scenarios where, you know, anything could happen. And right. does. <laughs> Time for... oh. Dwight Biddle. <laughs> That's a great noise for it. <laughs> Moo. <laughs> this is this is so like some twisted version of the Mad Cow, I think. <laughs> oh God, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> I don't know if if Wendy was mad or not over it. I mean, as the uh, reporter said in the hallway at the courtroom, you know, it's, there were no the complaints from the cow. <laughs> the cow never complained. Yeah. Well, apparently, apparently with Denny, the camel never complained either. So there's a, again a recurring theme. <laughs> Livestock, and we're going to even touch on that. <laughs> <laughs> go to Trek in the courtroom about human and animal interaction in that oh, way. Oh, boy. I know. It's all over the place. We're pushing more envelopes than than there we have. Yeah, pushing more envelopes than the show itself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, we're, we're pretty much G-rated. Yes, we are. Let's let the opening scene of the episode actually introduce the issue of <clears throat> Mr. Biddle and his forbidden love. Wait. How are you? Oh, not good, Shirley. Why? Jeannie is leaving me. What? Why? And she's trying to have the marriage annulled. That's ridiculous. Not to mention impossible. You've been married over 20 years. She just wants it all erased. As if... As if I never existed, I guess. Why? What's gotten into her? Well, it's more what I've gotten into, I suppose. I strayed. You? Well, I, I can't pretend I'm not shocked. Even so, infidelity isn't grounds for annulment. There's something you're not telling me. I strayed with Wendy. You've met Wendy. Wendy. You're a cow? We became very close. One night, I'd had a bit to drink, I suppose. Jeannie and I had been a little estranged. And... You strayed 
with livestock? (laughs) (laughs) Yep, straying is a good word for cows. I mean, don't cattle stray from the herd? (laughs) I think they do. Well, this is um, only the beginning, (laughs) because... More is revealed in the court testimony, but Shirley cannot handle this, or she doesn't want to. I mean, who does? Yeah, she says she dumps it up on, dumps it off on Denise. And Denise says, "You can't turf this one to me." I was like, "Turf." <laughs> Clever, right? It was good. That's the legal hierarchy for you too. Oh yeah. Shirley dumps it on Denise. Denise, Denise usually dumps her work on Garrett. <laughs> this one, goes on down the line. Of course, she had to spin it in, in explaining to Biddle why she was taking it on. I mean, you know, I'm the hot attorney. Everybody likes to, you know, give the, yeah. these cases to the hot attorney. I'm hot right now. <laughs> well, she just won. That. She's won a couple of cases. So, yeah. yeah, she's burning up wherever <laughs> she's been for the last was six years. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So, oh, we should probably mention Michael McKean, right? Right, Michael McKean. Yeah. Why don't you tell everybody how we know Michael McKean? Well, from what particular? He's he's been all over the place. I know he has. He's, can you name one place? <laughs> oh, he's been. He was in Spinal Tap. This this is Spinal Tap and all the sequels. He was on SNL, and re- more recently he had a recurring guest role in Alias. Oh yeah, that's right, Alias and X Files. Yeah, he, he was, had a recurring role in X Files too. He was named Little, <laughs> and this is Biddle. So yeah, he's um, quite a accomplished actor. Of course, Laverne and Shirley, but we don't even want to talk about that too much. <laughs> And maybe even, I don't know, courageous, because he had a, to portray maybe a less than flattering character here. Yes, he did. Now, we're going to hear from Mrs. Biddle. This is Jeannie Biddle. She's married to the strayer. And she has she explains to the judge, well, her perspective on it. And she is played by Susan Rattan from L.A. Law, right? Right. That's great. She's back again within David the fold. Kelly loves to do that. I know. And she was pretty good at that, too. She was, she was a great role. She was a, kind of a small role, but she's good for what she did. And here we hear from Jeannie Biddle. M- Mrs. Biddle, why erase the whole marriage? Because it was never real. He was always in love with her. The cow? Over the last ten years or so, sometimes when we'd been together, which was never a lot, he'd call out her name, Wendy. And before her, there was another cow. Another cow? Queenie. I never caught them, but I saw the way he looked at her. And he would call out her name, too, and then try to cover by saying, I was his queen. This marriage is not real. And it hurts. Well, actually, he goes on and defends himself in front of everybody, but Mr. Biddle does, by explaining that she reminds him of a cow. Oh, God. That was a poor defense. Well, Denise didn't even want to put him on the stand in the first place when he's like, I want to hear from you. She was like, why? Because <laughs> that was not in her strategy, I guarantee. Oh, yeah. We don't want to hear the man because the man is, well, while we're repentant, he doesn't really excuse his behavior, really. No, he doesn't. And he, didn't he end up saying he had a crush on... Um, Bumpy. Bumpy. Which was, but, that, but that doesn't make him gay. No, no. <laughs> that was Shirley's male cow, I guess. Apparently. Yeah. And then there's Queenie. I mean, who knows? The long list of string or fantasizing. Jimmy Carter would have a problem with him, I think. <laughs> <laughs> we are down to the closing. And Denise, beyond all expectations, can somehow draw a literary correlation between this, what this man did and her, you know, her defense of him. Right. It's and, not a new concept. Yeah, well, you know, yeah, that's right. We had literary references last week too, and witches, 
And now, Denise lists a whole bunch. Your client's behavior doesn't shock you, counsel? Of course it does, but sex with animals? It's hardly a new concept. Greek literature is full of it. So is art. Chagall, Picasso, Rembrandt, they've all depicted it. To this day, men still dream of mermaids. And what woman hasn't had a friend with a half-man, half-bull fantasy? Your Honor, I need you to listen. Look, if you intend to romanticize the idea... Shakespeare already did that in A Midsummer Night's Dream. So did Yeats in his famous poem, Leda and the Swan. How can these terrified, vague fingers push the feathered glory from her loosened thighs? Lord, love a duck. So did Lita. And who can forget King Kong and Fay Ray? And where did Stort Little come from? Lord, love a duck? I think I missed that. I've never heard that phrase before in my life. It must be something from his era. He's old-fashioned, yeah. Yes, he is. Who was the, the judge there? Clark Brown. Oh, that was. That was um, Henry Gibson? That's the one that Denny likes to smack around. Yeah, Henry Gibson. Yeah. Oh, that's great. He's back again. Yeah. He, well, that's TV club does that all the time. We have like the judge we had in uh, the clown case, Jamie Atkinson, or the yeah, judge. Yeah, she, she's been around more than a few times. And oh yeah, the judge we had in the other case in this episode. We also we've also had a lot. Um, oh, Harvey Cooper. Right. Uh, Anthony the, Held. Yeah, Anthony Held. Yes, from Boston Public. All right. So all three of those. Those are probably the three most recurring judges on Boston Legal, and they're all in this episode. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Everybody's working. Yes. <laughs> Well, that pretty much brings us to the end of the Denise, the uh, the, the Biddle story. <laughs> but uh, supposedly, I think I think they're trying for reconciliation. He decides that he's going to move into the city. <laughs> oh. Away from all temptation. Away from all temptation. Hey, it's worked for other men and other pro- proclivities. So, no. so We're now moving to our final major storyline. That would be uh, the man who loves his guns. Danny he uses them. Denny Crane. He walks into, strides into, with all his, you know, magnificence, court, because he's been summoned, and he just... Uh, Denny Crane. Denny Crane. Don't know why I'm here. No, Denny Crane. I've been summoned. Yes. He <laughs> <laughs> walks in only to find that Harvey Cooper, who just, you know, has it in for him somehow... <laughs> Always. ...has picked him to defend, really, the vilest of criminals. <laughs> yeah, he's just scum. Complete. I'm sure Harvey Cooper didn't foresee what Denny would do and. <laughs> in their private meeting room with the with Jessel. No, you're no, just trying to torture him, make him do something he would hate, because he has a little thing against probably Denny and the firm in general. An enormous thing, yes. Yeah. Poor Garrett. We will hear from Garrett and the judge right now, but Garrett is very excited. He has been given a murder case when he's a young, new associate by the great Denny Crane, and, you know, is happy to shine Denny's shoes. A hark back, of course, to the previous episode, which is... When Garrett learned how to shine shoes, compliments of Brad. <laughs> Go shine shoes. Yeah. So, you heard me. <laughs> so, you know, Denny is standing in, in the Crane Pull and Schmidt lobby with Garrett prone on the ground, rubbing on his shoes for him. Well, he, he was going to have him lick him, but he likes Garrett, so just with, just with the sleeve. Yeah. So Garrett comes in, just all happy, ready to serve the law, and this is what happens. Have you ever tried a case before, counsel? I won my moot court competition at Suffolk, sir. Turn around. What are you going to do? I ask you to turn around. I see members of the media here. Some of you have video cameras. I invite you to point them this way. 
We like to think that all are entitled to a fair trial in this country, that we have an advocacy system about truth. But the real truth, the ugly one, is that the indigent get anything but fairness. On this side, we have a district attorney with 50 homicide trials under his belt. And here, representing the accused, we have a boy who won his moot court competition in law school. This is how it is, people. The poor get the lawyers who can't get real clients of their own. We have a system where the state matches the best and the brightest against defense attorneys coming out of a pool of inexperience and incompetence. It is an insult to our notion of democracy. It makes a mockery of criminal justice. I will not indulge a mockery in my courtroom. Turn around, counsel. Put one arm behind your back as if it were tied. Now, stand on one leg as if your client barely has a leg to stand on with you as his counsel. Now you hop on out of here. Tell Danny Crane if he doesn't show up to represent his client, he will be jailed. Ha! Now! (laughs) And later, as as the rest of Kripal-Schmidt watches this fiasco (laughs) unfolding on the evening news, they have um, on the news, they're showing poor Big Garrett hop out of there and the logo of the news underneath that says judge is hopping mad <laughs> <laughs> that was clever and then denny is like a judge tells you to hop out and you do it oh yeah that's right well i mean it's scary he doesn't have the experience i mean the judge tells him to do something yeah he is going to do it well sure wouldn't we all well <laughs> i don't know he's on the bench he's got the right. power the story unfolds of course why don't you share what happens when just really briefly when denny who has has to come back and represent the client at least <laughs> He's told to whether he actually ends up doing it or not. I think that's going to be revealed. Yeah. They go into a private room. Yeah. Well, at first he he tried to get out of it by criticizing. Well, not so much criticizing, but insulting the judge. But that doesn't work. So he goes into this private meeting with his client and subsequently shoots his client in both of the kneecaps. And then claims it was self defense when the, when the authorities rush in. He's just sitting in his chair to get shot in the kneecaps, which, again, hang around and listen to our Trek in the Courtroom segment because we're going to talk about that also. Kirk shooting people in, in the kneecaps. In the kneecaps. <laughs> no, not a new concept. No, it isn't. And it's, a, I guess, a good place to get. I mean, could have shot him in a more fatal place. I mean, I'm sure it's quite painful, but he'll live. Oh, yeah, he will. He'll live to die, according to Denny. How is Denny walking to the court with a gun? I mean, I guess you have your license to carry a concealed weapon, I suppose. But come on, take it away from him. He walked into one courtroom with a musket. (laughs) That's right. Pistol smaller. And just anybody who's like seen any of the pictures coming up from Gone, the episode, uh, episode nine, coming up in December 6th, there's more shooting going on. There's going to be more Denny gun love. (laughs) He loves his firearms. He does. So Lewiston gets a nice little scene. He tries to work it out with the DA Scott Berger because he wants to charge Crane with, obviously, the logical penalties that go along with shooting people that are unarmed. Right. And uh, and we find out that Paul has known Denny for 35 years. That comes out. Yeah, it is. Well, Denny feels like he's been slathered i think slathered. as he puts it yeah. that'd be slandered denny good job <laughs> slandered that would be i love the play on the words keep him up <laughs> keep him up then he takes matters into his own hand and just calls up his buddy larry king and he says i'm going to set the record straight denny's well connected and here we go welcome back to larry king live and with me now is denny crane the legendary boston attorney who just yesterday apparently opened fire on his own client for self-defense you're kidding self-defense. You're not really asking people to believe that. Larry, 
It's a crime to shoot people, even child-raping, murdering schmucks like my client was and still is. Okay, but clearly you're not saying if a defendant is repugnant enough, fair game. You're entitled as a criminal defense attorney to shoot someone? No, 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 no. So, self-defense. But even if I did simply choose to shoot him, which I didn't because it was against the law, so what? So what, Larry? You know, the real problem is too many criminals get away with it. We got hundreds of thousands of unsolved murders in this country. So what you're saying is it's okay for defense lawyers to take the law into their own hands. No. Come on. You know what's going to happen to this child rapist murdering scum? Ashcroft. God bless him. He's going to swoop in and he's going to transfer this case to the federal court so we can impose the death penalty. Danny Ashcroft is no longer the attorney general. Well, whatever. The Spanish guy. Even better. My client's going to get the death penalty, bad knees and all, because he deserves it. And then all the bleeding liberals and all of Hollywood will come running to defend him, make him a cause celeb. But who's crying for the 13-year-old girl? The problem with the criminal justice system, the criminals have more rights, they have more attention, they get more sympathy than the victims. It's disgusting, Larry. <laughs> and then Kyle, how did that scene end with Denny? Oh, then he just jumps over and takes control of the show. Donna from Cincinnati, we, do we have any callers? <laughs> that was great. And of course, you know, he's getting confused about Ashcroft and... Antonio uh, Gonzalez, that's now the Attorney General. Uh, Alberto, actually. Alberto, I'm sorry. Alberto, of course, because I remember when I heard it on the news, like it was about a year ago now, Alberto, and I thought immediately, Al, Al, Alan Shore. (laughs) I I always think in terms of anything legal, I think in terms of Boston legal. That's to be expected. Then he has to get this whole bleeding liberals in Hollywood jumping to his defense (laughs) of Jessel. Well, he makes a good point about the fact that sometimes the, the criminal gets more sympathy than victim and sometimes that's true you know do we know how this case ended i mean did jessel get other representation what happened i assume he i would assume he had to well, right after right after he shot him in the kneecap he's like this man needs new representation yeah okay that's true so i, I think it's probably given it was but the... he like 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 alan he was awarded a contempt sentence for his little ploy he called the judge a douchebag he was like i see what you're trying to do here and it's not going to get you anything but a contempt sentence after this trial is concluded oh that's right and that's when they had he went to jail, and Ellen right. came in and said, this could be serious. That's right. Tenny Tenny been in jail twice this season, I think. Yeah. <laughs> that concludes. That's all we're going to really dwell on that particular scene. Storyline. Story but it is touched upon in our next clip. We can't ever not have a show without a little bit of the balcony scene. It's a staple of the show now. It is. Alan and Denny. This time only one at the end of the show. <laughs> yeah. No fake outs in the middle anymore. Diddy and Alan sitting sitting out there. Actually, Alan has already been out there waiting up for Denny. Denny comes rushing in because he's taken the light shuttle back from wherever Larry King has filmed in Atlanta, New York. I don't know. New York, probably. And he rushes in and joins him. And Alan says, I've been waiting up. <laughs> Worried sick. I got a call from the Republican National Party tonight. They think I might have a future in politics. They want to put some feelers out. Maybe me running for mayor of Boston Uh we wouldn't get to be flamingos again of course we would what would you do as mayor Denny really well I don't know I'd uh, attack Rhode Island small 
What was the word you used to describe me on the show tonight? Inimitable. That's it. That's the kind of mayor I would be. Inimitable. It's fun being me. Is it fun being you? Most of the time, yes, actually. Well, what else is there? Indeed. Oh, I love William Shatner's delivery. And he actually scored higher on, on the pronunciation of in- inimitable, inimitable. Than, even, than Spader did. But I, I think Spader may have stumbled a little bit on that. But it just flowed from that man. Well, I can't say it. Go Give it a shot. Inimitable. That sounds pretty good. I have a way with words. Speaking of which, Kyle, we've missed this. It is time for you to have your way with words. (laughs) It is time for Kyle Abney's The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Uh, We took a week off, but here we go. The Good, Bad, and Ugly for this seventh episode of Season 2, Boston Legal. Truly, Madly, Deeply. The Good. First off, Alan and Brad taking a case together. I love it when these two guys are forced to work together, and while they're still oppose each other a little bit, Brad had that little underhanded comment about Alan being half-evolved. It was nice to see Brad help Alan through his fear of clowns, which I mentioned earlier is technical term is cholrophobia. also like to mention the fact that Shirley couldn't handle her old friend's indiscretion, so instead she pushes all her work down onto Denise. Karma's a bit, ain't it, Denise? That's what you get for dumping everything on Garrett. <laughs> and I, I just love it when Shirley pulls rank. I love it when she says something like, she said it in this episode, this is Crane pulling Schmidt. I'm Schmidt. I love it when she pulls that on people. It is good. Uh, one comment by Denny I thought was pretty funny was, the indigent are poor. I hate the poor. Can't pay you. Um, <laughs> Denny, he, make, he makes the point of saying things that are obvious, but in a funny way, and this is one of them. And overall, his handling of his design case was hilarious. And even though the judge seemed to get some sadistic happiness out of watching Denny try and deal with it, it still ended in an interesting, very Denny Crane way. And last thing I'd like to mention for the good is news travels quickly on the grapevine in Boston, doesn't it? Seems like everyone, even <laughs> Denny, who was in prison, heard about the fact that Alan was afraid of clowns pretty quickly. It's just a rumor mill. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to the bad. First off, Alan, you should have listened to Brad, and you should have inter- interviewed your potential assistant. This Melissa isn't going to take any crap from anybody, especially not Alan. Next, Alan's fear of clowns. Poor guy. He already doesn't have the whole macho thing going for him, which Brad kind of has, the chiseled features. Alan doesn't really have that. And add on top of that, a fear, fear of clowns, too. Poor guy. <laughs> but he doesn't let anything else show. He's on top of everything That's else. That's true. He's allowed but he was pretty unkempt this episode. Oh, he's, he's got one next episode, but yeah. He's a vulnerable guy. That's part of the attraction, I think. Some yeah. women. The last thing I'd like to say under the bad was the man that Denny was defending. He's really of the earth type of guy and mm. for all of Denny's shortcomings he still does have a strong sense of morality he didn't deal with his filth of a client the best way but the guy did have it coming I also liked his little speech on Larry King his logic is a bit fuzzy when it comes to the whole criminal being treated with more sympathy than the victim but he sure isn't wrong sometimes the criminal does get treated too well in a crime and some, something needs to be done about it maybe not exactly what he did but something needs to be done and lastly the ugly First off, Garrett taking the judge's orders and hopping out of the courtroom. Even better was the fact that it was on television. Poor kid. And also... You know he's paid well, though. He is paid well. But, I mean, he's just trying to get his 
you know, his shot. That was his shot right there. He was humiliated in front of all of Boston. <laughs> Next was the storyline with Michael McKean's character. Pretty much the entire bestiality story, particularly the part when he admitted a crush on Shirley's cow, Bumpy, and then quickly states that that doesn't make him gay, as if that was what would make him sexually deviant. And last thing I'd like to mention was something I almost put in the good because it was hilarious, but I couldn't because it was kind of ugly too, was Denny, seeing no outs in his situation, subsequently shoots his remorseless client in each kneecap. If that isn't a Denny Crane way to solve a problem, I sure don't know what is. Not one kneecap, two. <laughs> if a guy had one third. Each kneecap. This is and nice. so that concludes the good, the bad, and the ugly for this week. Oh, well done. Please Thank write you. that one up and send it to me. We're going to post that over at boston-legal.org on the episode page. Yeah. I miss reading reading them and savoring them. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. We do want to talk a little bit about next week. There's an episode coming up. Why don't you tell us the name of that episode? Uh-huh, you just don't want to curse on the show. I don't. I can't <laughs> say the word. <laughs> uh, the next episode will be the eighth of the season, and it is called Ass Fat Jungle. What was that and again? Ass Fat Jungle. <laughs> you just want me to curse as much as, as, much as I have to. <laughs> just so your mom's not It's here. airing on the 15th of November. That's on Boston Legal Tuesdays. Yes, it is. Let's hear the preview. Next on Boston Legal. Night terrors? Usually it's brought on by distress. They can be potentially life-threatening. I need somebody to guard me at night. You want to pay me to sleep with you? Yes. That would make me a hooker. My son has an alibi. There's no evidence linking him to the crime. The only eyewitness suffers from Alzheimer's. Who is the President of the United States? Objection, Your Honor. This case has nothing to do with you, Denny. Don't lie to me. You walk around saying you have mad cow disease. God forbid people think you have Alzheimer's. Looking forward to that. So we do know that Denny has to face his Alzheimer's a little bit. Alan has to face a fear he has, or a phobia that makes him sleepwalk, I guess. Yeah, it'll be a good one. Oh, it will be. There always are. I have never seen a bad Boston Legal. And I'm not just saying that. We're, we're praisers. I know we're doing we our job. It's not praisers. Much, not much critics. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's just endlessly funny. I mean, there are ugly things. I know, but you know, it all works out. It does. We have a special guest joining us. Yes, we do. On the phone right now, we have a journalist, a writer, a media person, and her name is Diana Mayoko. She had a conversation with Phil Neal, who's the editor of our Boston Legal. Let's bring her in. Diana, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I've known Diana probably almost a year now. We've, we've been friends and writing partners, but uh, Diana has a lot of... A lot of media savvy behind her. She's the media director for the online magazine Moonlighting Strangers. You can find that in her work on Moonlighting21.com. And over the past several years, she's conducted interviews with the Moonlighting cast and crew and providing behind-the-scenes history of that really tremendous series that we all miss. And she and her staff were instrumental in convincing the studio to release the series on DVD. So anybody who's watching that on DVD, we have her to thank for that. You are featured on the DVD in the bonus area, right? Right. It's the extra called the Moonlighting Phenomenon. So you're actually on screen talking a little bit about your involvement with Moonlighting and, and getting it brought to DVD, is that correct? Uh, we talk more about what the show, uh, what a big deal the show was at the time, what a phenomenon the show was at the time from a fan point of view. I mean, we are going to talk about Boston Legal and your interview with Phil Neal, but there are a lot of similarities between the two. Let's make sure and touch on that here in the next few minutes because... Moonlighting and Boston Legal have more than just Phil in common, I think. <laughs> Actually, last February, you went over to Raleigh Studios in Manhattan Beach 
and you talked to Phil Neal. He's one of the editors on Boston Legal, but one of the main, what, three editors that there are? Right, there's Craig Bench and Michael Hathaway yeah. are the other two. Well, tell us a little bit about meeting Phil and what work he's done in the past, even before Boston Legal. Well, um, the reason I was interviewing Phil is, as you know, um, we're running a a fan site, and we have a fan publication called Moonlighting Strangers. And a lot of these people who work on Moonlighting also work on other projects. So in in interviewing them, we also give them an opportunity to promote their current projects. So so it was great for me to meet Phil and talk to him about Moonlighting as well as Boston Legal, because I'm a fan of that show also. It's always great to talk to someone when you're a fan of their work. Oh, they, they totally read that. They understand mm-hmm. that better than just a plain old interviewer that's asking, what's it like to work with James Spader, for instance? Right. But I do want to say, in terms of what you're doing on bostonlegal.org, it's really tremendous. I found your site about a, a year ago, and and that's how we know each other, because we are kind of mutual admirers of what we're doing. I mean, you're doing uh, the website from bostonlegal.org and, and just promoting that show, mm-hmm. I think, and then what we were doing for Moonlining, promoting that show. Yeah, Hopefully. I think we're kindred spirits. Well, thank you very much for, yes. for mentioning boston-legal.org. <laughs> yes, sorry, your question again? Well, yeah, I just wanted to talk a little bit about you telling us a little bit about what Phil has done besides Moonlighting. He's worked on a number of series like you alluded to. Yes, well, he stood over before Moonlighting. He worked on Remington Steel, and he's also edited a show that I really liked in the 80s called Mid- Midnight Caller. But he's also worked in Allie McBeal, Boston Public. So he's ah. been uh, an employee of David E. Kelly, it seems. And he's obviously very happy. Correct me if I'm wrong, um, was Remington Sp- Steel a Glenn? Claren, yes, he was a writer-producer on the show. Same with, obviously, we're telling people, Moonlighting was created, created. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. Glenn Gordon Karen. So, yeah, if I think once you're in the family of a particular production company, you tend to get called back, right? Yes, that's, that's the case. I understand, because of your interview, that Phil actually won an award. He was honored this year. Tell us about that. Yes, he was uh, awarded the Ace Eddie Award, which is the American Cinema Editors Award, and it's given out every year to um, editors in film and television, and he went for the drama category for the episode Hired Guns, which I know is a fan favorite. Oh, that's my favorite. Yes, I remember when that episode aired. There was a lot of talk about that episode and how, you know, how funny it was and how tense it was, and it was a great storytelling. Well, I'm going to ask you a little bit more later about the specific kind of editing done in Hired Guns, because he he actually shared with you some of the interesting sort of ways he did it and probably why he was recognized for that episode. And he was up against, for that award, he was up against some heavy hitters, wasn't he? Like Sopranos? And- Sopranos and, and, uh, and the um, editor for Desperate Housewives for the uh, pilot episode of that That's show. great that he won and brought it home for Boston Legal and mm-hmm. himself, of course. Well, besides the fact that we just mentioned that uh, Phil is pretty close as far as his vitae goes with um, Glenn Gordon Corona and Boston Legal. They're actually very close in proximity, those two shows, uh, or actually those two entities. How is that? What? Tell me what interesting angle there is about where they're located in filming. Well, they're, they're located on the same lot, and they're right next door to each other. And we, we should identify that we're talking about Glenn Gordon Corona's new series. Which is Medium, mm-hmm. a big hit for NBC on Monday nights at 10. Like that show, too. Mm-hmm. Thank goodness it's not opposite Boston Legal. No. But they're literally, their studios are on the same lot, so within a football field from each other. Oh, they're much closer than a football field. Ah. They're like a few feet. Okay. <laughs> Which I, yeah, they're, they're right next door to each other. It's not like spread out. Ah, that's interesting. The fact that you were able to check out Raleigh Studios, that was pretty nice. Mm-hmm. 
I know that there is a lot in your article, which can be found, I might mention, at boston-legal.org. The article is linked to, and you can actually go straight to moonlighting21.com, phil underscore neil.html, and read the whole thing as well. But let's talk about what you and Phil talked about with Boston Legal. Now, he uh, shared with you some of his thoughts about working on Boston Legal and some of the actors, and I guess he actually worked with William Shatner once before a long time ago. Yes, on the series Sequest. I seem to remember that series. It was on NBC also. Ah. He was a producer on that show. Boy, it was Shat- back in 1993. Oh, that, okay, that long ago. Shatner has been in so much. <laughs> He's one busy man. I, I didn't realize this. I guess editors have quite a bit of say over how the music and in, in the scoring is used in an episode, correct? Yes. They are uh, part of the decision maker. I, I, I believe they definitely provide input on the tunes that could be edited into the scene. So yeah, the actual tunes and then how it's edited in, sometimes with the beat and the cadence, because obviously they're they're marrying up different scenes that are shot at different times, cut back and forth maybe. So what did uh, Phil tell you a little bit about the music score and kind of the process of what he's used? I think you, he gave an example, didn't he, about the Christmas episode? Yes, but when he was um, editing Hired Guns, he recalled that it was an episode that that was airing around Christmas time. It was the Christmas episode. So he was, um, I think he was humming to himself. I believe he said he just had that song, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, in his head. So he (laughs) said he went over to iTunes to find various versions of the song that would best fit the the scene that he was trying to underscore. And this was the Christmas party, at least. I don't know if that was where it played, but there was the Crane Pool and Schmidt Christmas party with the mistletoe, Laurie kissing Alan under the mistletoe. Yes, with a massive mistletoe, who could forget, <laughs> attached, <laughs> over his head. <laughs> yeah, attached to Alan Shore, that's correct. <laughs> he found a song, he found that version that started out with an a cappella version of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, and I guess that particular one was decided upon by the other people involved in that decision-making. But um, he found it, right? Yes, uh, I guess, and I didn't realize this, but um, yeah, I, I guess editors go to iTunes to find their songs. <laughs> Boy, <laughs> that's pretty so. nice. Sample all the music there. But then it doesn't stop. You've got to get the l- rights and the licensing and everything else. Right. And then you have uh, Danny Lux, who composes uh, the songs, uh, the underscore, the original music. Mm-hmm. And then the man who sings, the guy with that great blues voice is Danny Lux. Yeah, it's hard to actually call it singing. I'm sorry, not Danny Lux. No. Billy Valentine. Billy sorry. Valentine, right. Yeah. And, and do we call it singing? It's kind of like this sort of almost <laughs> rapping kind of thing that goes on. But yeah, it would be interesting to sit in on a scoring session, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Didn't Phil say that, that he's brought in other songs at times and, and they say, like, oh, get rid of that, that's horrible. So <laughs> he's not always winning at that. Yes, I, I think uh, they think uh, a particular song would go well and then when they actually put it into the scene, it, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess an example he gave me was when Denny shoots the, ho- um, the man who's holding Alan Shore hostage. They were thinking of using the uh, score to The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Yeah. And uh, I believe that's Ennio Morricone. I think he wrote that score. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, you know, you hear that a lot. I mean, it's a very popular tune to use. I mean, I hear it a lot. Mm-hmm. But um, maybe it but was for just some a- reason, they felt it was too cute for the scene. Uh, maybe they wanted something more, with more weight okay. instead of something, you know, because, you know, Denny just shot a man. And I guess, you know, that whole scene was tense and serious. And then. I would assume, rather than underscoring it with um, with that particular tune, maybe it didn't work. Going back to Hired Guns, 
actually talked to Phil Neal about editing that episode, the one he won the Eddie for. I like that name, Eddie. Just to refresh everybody's memory, that was the one with a lot of fast edits between, um, during, like you just mentioned, the hostage crisis with Alan being held at gunpoint and flitting back and forth between that and the scene of Brad Chase delivering his, I think it was his, perhaps his closing argument mm-hmm. in the case of the uh, the woman who also was on trial for shooting her husband. Share a little bit about what he talked about with the fast edits and the very unique editing style that actually does seem to um, pervade a lot of the episodes, which is the shooting style of the handheld cameras and the zooms and the sort of that transition they do between episodes with the hands and the stapler and <laughs> the clock. I remember Phil saying that the um, the, the cuts, the intercutting between the SWAT team and um, Brad delivering his closing argument was was part was written in the script. So I guess in in order to make it uh, even tighter and tenser, they they inserted multiple cuts going back and forth to build tension. That was an idea born from David e. Kelly's mind in that case. Right. Right. Well, I asked them that the, the show seems to have a distinct style where the, the director seems to focus on the hands or objects. or um, And he said that that was really Bill DeLia's idea. He's the co-executive, he's the executive producer of Boston Legal. And he's also directed episodes. And I believe his background is he was a commercial, television commercial director. So that's why he's got an interesting eye for uh, a shooting style. So he gave it the signature style, and almost a documentary style, where the camera would come in close into a per, you know an actor's face mm-hmm. to give it more texture he um you know because a lot of shows are shot very simple you know to differentiate from other shows they just gave it an immediate look and the probably more serious look I, I would think it would lend to the show I, I guess it would be very advantageous for a show to have a signature style because I, and i'm thinking like ally mcbeal did a lot of those reenactment of what was going on in her brain that were very whimsical and, and so there's things like that that it's nice to be different than the average television show the procedural show that always you know does the same sort of thing you know the close-up of the intestines <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. you actually had the fortune after your interview with with phil neal there that day at work it was a working day at the studio in fact wasn't it valentine's day that you were there? It was... Um, or very close mon- to it? it was, yeah, it was. Monday the 14th, February 14th, right. Yeah, yes, it was a great day for me. I had a lot of people to see that day. <laughs> I saw a lot of people that day besides going on the, on, the, on the set of Boston Legal. Oh, that was just one of the... Yeah, mm-hmm. it was just one of the things you did. Yes. But Phil actually took you on a bit of a tour of the, the studio, and there was uh, scenes being filmed, right? Yes. When he first brought me down, actually it was a lunch break, so nobody was around. But I did run into Betty White. She was great. Oh. She's such a great lady. Did you speak with her? Yes, I did. I, I said, hello, Miss White. She says, oh, please call me Betty. Oh. <laughs> that was very nice for her to say that. And uh, we just talked a little bit because um, I joined this organization called the Screen Smart Set, which is a fundraising arm for the Motion Picture and Television Fund, and she's an, a member also. So I talked to her about that a little bit. Oh, well, that's interesting. Yeah, and, and then afterwards, Phil took me around, and I saw the conference room and the courtroom. Then people started coming back from lunch. And then um, I was able to say hello to Candace Bergen and Mark Valley, and I also watched the scene being shot. The scene where Laurie Colson is putting Denny on notice. She's telling uh, Shirley and uh, Paul that she's fed up with his sexual harassment. I think the episode was Death Be Not Proud. Right, and, and Phil was editing that episode also. 
And then just recently, that storyline wrapped up just a few weeks ago, correct? Yes. After what, six months? <laughs> Not language. And, and even though they said it was last week, it just happened last week. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We know better. Yeah. <laughs> In television time, of course. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. And you um, actually talked to Candace and Mark. Did they have any interesting things to say to you? Oh, no. Well, Candace, I remember just commenting... Oh, yes, yes, because Phil introduced me and, and told her that I was um, interviewing him on his work on Moonlighting. And I told her, yes, it's coming out on DVD. And she goes, oh, really? Because she thought it was out already. And then with Mark, he just uh, introduced, you know, because I'm a, I'm a fan of his work. I really liked his work in Keen Eddie. Mm-hmm. And um, I, too bad that show was canceled. It was really a well-done show. Mm-hmm. So I just basically said hello then. I liked his work on that show. That's great. That was memorable, and I'm, I'm really glad that you were able to share that with us, and mm-hmm. everybody that's listening, I know, learned just a little bit more what it was like to be behind the scenes. And Oh, and I also did speak to the director, Matt Chapman. Oh. Uh, he was directing uh, the episode, so I spoke to him a little bit, and I also spoke to Bill D'Elia and Mike Listo. Yeah, and he just, didn't he just direct an um, episode, I'm trying to think, five or six, was it Men to Boys? I cannot remember right now. But Yes, and he also did it, Girls and Beyond. Oh, another great he did, episode. He directed that one, yeah. From season one. Of course, mm-hmm. we like that because it was a Brad Chase-centric yes. episode. Yeah, well, he doesn't get enough screen time. <laughs> no, no, but he was there. That was great. <laughs> Well, it's really wonderful to hear about the hardworking people that were behind the scenes that don't always get acknowledged for their work. And the editor is pretty important. The writer, the editor, the director, and everybody else. Yes, and and that's what I found in doing my interviews with the Moonlighting cast and crew. It's not just the actors. It's the people behind the scenes that are very important and and really... It's a collaborative effort, and I think it's really interesting for people, and it was for me, to understand what really goes on behind the scenes of putting a show together. And so much has been written about the actors, and you mm-hmm. know, there's really not much more to be revealed that they're willing to reveal. So it's right. this is actually where the series is created, in the minds of the people that are the creatives. And so it was wonderful for you to share that with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're welcome. And I hope you get some more interviews lined up and will come to us first with an exclusive. <laughs> well, I think it's your turn now. You need to get on the set of Boston Legal and do some <laughs> interviews. You're doing a tremendous job on your site, I really have Thank to say. You. So uh, I well, hope people are uh, acknowledging you in some way. Seeing as you're probably 20 minutes away from the studios and I'm about a thousand miles, we'll let you be our correspondent, <laughs> oh, okay? <laughs> Let me back on the lot. All right. (laughs) Thank you so much, Diana. Okay, you're welcome. It is time now in our show to look at the parallel universe of Boston Legal and Trek in the courtroom. Every week, there's something. And I, real or imagined, there's something, Kyle. (laughs) And Deb finds it. Deb from Montreal, which is William Shatner's hometown. (laughs) <laughs> that was very Shatnerian. I try. <laughs> but I think that she found two good ones this week. And she calls the parallels from Truly Madly Deeply of Clowns, Knees, and the Furry. <laughs> so this is, this. I'm actually reading her work. This is not my opinion, but I do agree with it. Alan Shore's Fear of Clowns theme is reminiscent of anybody who enjoys Star Trek Voyager. In season two of the episode, The Thaw... The entire crew of Voyager must overcome their fear of a computer-generated clown. So that was the theme of the episode. <laughs> wow. I know. I wish I had a soundbite for that. I, I think I'm going to put one up or a link to information about that on the website. If you go to boston-legal.org forward slash Star Trek, uh, there will soon be information about this episode. But now she mentions there this thing with knees. I alluded to earlier that there was a connection between... <laughs> 
Kinney shooting his client's knees out and something that happened in Star Trek. It seems like uh, both Kirk and Crane seem to have this thing for knees. And as Deb wrote, in Star Trek Six, Kirk and McCoy are sent to the penal colony on Eura Pinth. It's a frozen tundra mining colony. You know, we see that on every other episode. Yeah, <laughs> Of every other science fiction movie. <laughs> and uh, all the galaxy's worst criminals are, are sentenced to life there. And the Cleons put on a, a show trial. So right now it sounds already similar. Yeah. <laughs> so Kirk's confronted by this huge alien who wants to take Kirk's warm cape from him for himself. Kirk kind of kicks the creature in the knees, completely disabling the creature, the huge creature. So uh, here's a little soundbite demonstrating that, thanks to Deb. I was lucky that thing had knees. That was not his knee. Not everybody keeps their genitals in the same place, Captain. <laughs> <laughs> That's like Men in Black 2. Have you seen Men in Black 2? Oh, yeah. No, I don't remember the... Balchinians. They had genitals in places than... Different places? <laughs> yeah, they had them on their chins. Okay. Yeah, they had a little trouble beating up these aliens until they realized they hit them there. Oh, oh. <laughs> they laid them out. <laughs> and the woman we heard from from that uh, Star Trek episode was Marita. She's played by Iman, you know, the very regal model that's married to David Bowie. Uh, that was wow. interesting. Not all aliens have genitals in the same place. <laughs> <laughs> now, as we know, Crane obviously had a problem with Jessel, the, the horrible criminal. And Kirk has, of course, been very clear about good and bad, too. So Kirk has the equivalent of Denny Crane's Hope You Die. First rule of assassination, kill the assassins. Kill the assassins. And that's pretty much what he, Crane he had. There. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, believe it or not, there was actually a parallel between the bestiality, the, the animal love storyline. <laughs> and uh, yeah, love, love. That's an easier thing to say than the other Boo. word yeah <laughs> of course everybody knows in star trek in the future the people that inhabit the other planets all look like animals do they not <laughs> they do all, or, furry. or maybe you just make their ears pointy or something <laughs> that's right so four-legged or they're furry or they've got something like that yeah pointed ears i don't know if he's talking <laughs> about spock we see them in uniforms we see them in relationships with the humans so hey it's a free world out there you know interspecies as Jeannie Biddle would have a problem with, stick with your species. Uh, in Star Trek Four, where no man has gone before, the opening scene in Nimbus Three, that's the uh, planet of intergalactic peace. Thank you for that, Deb. She knows it all. She does. Yeah. There's a, a table dancer that is there to for the amusement and the arousal of the patrons. So, again, you know, here's some human patrons being aroused at the table dance of a, you know, animal-like creature. And then who can forget the Tribbles? The Tribble, there was Tribble love everywhere. You don't sound like you remember the Tribbles. This is from Star Trek mid-60s, decade or two before you were born. <laughs> but there were these little furry animals. Tribbles. I guess you can forget Tribbles. <laughs> also, I don't, I have to say, I don't know her reference to yiffing, but I guess the Star Trek people will. And apparently if you look, look up the word yiff, Y-I-F-F, in Wikipedia, wikipedia.com, I think we'll find a parallel right there with animals and humans. And of course, the last word, she pointed this out last week, the last word of the episode, and it is a parallel universe to Star Trek, goes to Alan Shore when he said, indeed. I think we all remember that that seems to be something that comes out of Spock's mouth quite often when he's talking to Kurt. Indeed. 
That's Parallel Universe Trek in the courtroom. Boston Legal News of the week. Things were happening. There's always something going on, isn't it? There always is. Last week on the Tony Danza show, a little talk show he has, Bob William Shatner was on, and he said that a part was offered to Leonard Nimoy to be on Boston Legal. Um, and we have you have a song clip for that? I do. Speaking of the show, is it true that we, there's a rumor that uh, Leonard Nimoy is going to do a character or, or be on the show? Or Lenny is my dear friend. Of course. Spock. And Spock. I can do that you know, with my hand. Yeah, here it is. Yeah. Uh, this is a long story. Is it? <laughs> it's a long story. Really? Yeah. How long is your show? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We'd rather hear about you. Uh, I walk around like that, too. And... Um, and, and so, and so, uh, I wanted him to be because he's a wonderful actor. Sure. So I, I, we talked on the on Boston Legal about getting Leonard there, and just the the other day, Leonard said, "You know, I've retired. I've put it all behind me. I, I because they offered him a part on." So Leonard's not going to do it. Oh, he's not? No. Yeah, another That's one of these guys. About. Well, I was so disappointed. Yeah, he's another one of these guys who said, "I'm done," and really who? sticks to it. I'm disappointed too. Me too. Well, he was wasn't he just on a. Priceline commercial a little well, while ago? Like a few years, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess, I guess he's retired since then. He's retired since like, painting something. I don't know what it is, some artistic endeavor. But, aw. Well, you know, maybe that's just the Hollywood speak for, you know, name, I don't your, do it. name your price, though, actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we'll see. It would be really great. To, and if, well, who do we have from the bridge left that can... I'm trying to think. Wow. Ahura, is she, is she still around? The interracial kiss, Lieutenant Yohara. Anyway, I hope I some more know. come back. And you know what's Hopefully. interesting is also Tony Danza was in the practice. And so there's these rumors going around that Tony Danza would be on the show and everything. And people are saying, no, 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 he's not. He's only focusing on his talk show. But that yeah. would be neat. That'd be interesting. And Tony had worked with David E. Kelly and he's talking to that. And he's such a, a Star Trek fan. So definitely go check out the video that's of that interview that's on boston-legal.org. And we also link to full transcripts and pictures of it at another site called vroom.com, V-R-R-R-M.com. Does a great job with anything that William Shatner's been on chronicling it. Some more news, right, Kyle? Yeah, former, well, now former Boston legal actress Monica Potter, who we all know is a series regular in season one and made a few special appearances at the beginning of season two. She's 34 years old, has welcomed her third child and her first daughter named Molly Bridget Allison. She was born on August 3rd, weighing seven pounds, three ounces. Now she's three months old, and the family is doing fantastic, according to Monica's rep. And she also has two teenage sons from her first marriage, so congratulations to Monica. Wow, she's 34, and she has two teenage sons? She, she probably gave birth at like 19 or 20 years old. Wow. Yeah, she must have. Wow. Well, this is, I think, we've all sort of wondered if this was the reason why she didn't continue on season right. two. Well, more power to her that she can stay on a, such a involved show as Boston Legal and raise, uh, raise children. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And now she has a little baby, so she just really has to focus on that, I guess. Yeah. This week's rating for Truly Madly Deep, Deeply, November 8th, um, it took second place in the hour to Law & Order SVU, which is, you know, usual, as usual. It topped the final hour of CBS's extended two-hour edition of Amazing Race 8. Uh, among total viewers, we took $11.8 million, and that episode of Amazing Race took only $10.5 million. And this episode was up from the prior week in total viewers, um, this week was 11.8 million, and last week was only 11.2, and also up in adult 1849 demographic. Um, this week it was 3.5 out of 9 versus last week only 3.4. So 
And so in viewers and young adults, the show delivered its second strongest performance of the season, which is great news. It's wow. still in the ratings every week. Second highest of the season. I wonder what the first one was. Do you think it was Black Widow? Probably. It's a lot of hype there. The yeah. And uh, also the lead-in, Commander-in-Chief, which is just getting massive ratings, 14.8 million viewers. Um, but Boston Legal is doing a great job keeping those viewers on ABC, which is something that ABC is looking for. Boston Legal had 80% retention in total viewers and 92% retention in that key demographic, 18 to 49. So that's, again, fantastic news for the show. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm just glad because, you know, I'm already thinking season three, season three. <laughs> oh, of course. It's pretty much a show. And as long as, I think as long as David E. Kelly, um, James Spader, and, and Shatner want to do the show, I think ABC will let them. And some late-breaking news. I just read this. I don't have a lot of information. I've not seen it yet, but I guess uh, James Spader did a voiceover for an Acura RL commercial. Some people have actually heard it. I think he just says at the end, in a very whispering and sexy voice, the Acura RL, wherever you want to go. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Gloria, for sharing that little bit of information. I appreciate that. We're running long again, Kyle, but I'm going to quickly run through new stuff over at boston-legal.org. Check it out. We've got the transcription. I'm a mess. Did a great job once again of Truly Madly Deeply, so you want to read through it. It's not an official script by any means, but, and you know, there'll be misspellings and everything. We do our best, but there you go. You can read all the great quotes. Yes, you can. As we mentioned, video of William Shatner, who was on the Tony Danza show, and also some some of his appearance on the Big Idea with Donnie Deutsch show, which was on November 7. He was on there for the full hour. Of course, I saw the full hour. I'm already skirting the edge of, you know, copyright infringement, so I'm only showing some of it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it was an ex. I was on CNBC. I don't think I've ever watched Donnie Deutsch before, and he did a good job with Shatner, and Shatner revealed a lot, and there was tons of clips from all his work. So I really enjoyed that, and you might want to go listen to that. Huh. Put up a new web page uh, on that site called Press and Buzz. It's links to articles about actually interviews perhaps with the cast and creatives. I'm finally going to post my very brief interview with Mark Valley there. I, I mean, it happened in March, and I've never even written it up. So uh, check that out here in the next day or two. But there's a new page. Just click on the press link. And you'll also be able to read the article that we just heard from Diana in her interview with Phil Neal. It's right there, too. I'm going to also mention some work I've been doing with a friend of mine. There's a short story on the Behind the Script page that's up there for a little while anyway, a little bit longer. It started being written right after the Tuesday episode that night. And it's written by Carolyn, who is a great writer. It has the voice of Alan, if ever anybody besides David E. Kelly does. I mean, this, she knows how to write that guy. And it, it basically takes, it's called Gratitude for Bradley, the Vanquisher of Clowns. And it's a role play situation. So it's, it's, you'll hear basically the further adventures after the case concluded between Alan and Brad as Alan does his best to unload the gratitude he feels for this man for having healed him of his fear, his phobia. The shortest time possible that he has to remain in Brad's debt is better. So he tries to return a favor. Brad's a little cautious about this, but he takes him on an excursion, and it's still unfolding. Mm, Go check that out. Okay, uh, it's time to hear from you guys. You've been listening to us for too long already, so we want to you know, do a little listening of you. So I do have a couple calls and an email or two to, to share. If you want to give us a call, 1-800-985-8290. Email us at bostonillegal at gmail.com. Let's go to the first caller. This one I'm just going to play a tiny bit because this was a very negative call. 
<laughs> I couldn't take the whole thing. But there was, we'll just listen to the few seconds here. The last thing that she mentions about Alan and Spader, I don't understand it, but it made me laugh. Also, we were offended that you would call our president the number one clown in the USA. I mean, that's going a little bit too far. You can call anything you want, but don't call him a clown. But this story just doesn't, it's becoming unbelievable. First, you have the sex scene in the office that had no bearing, no relevance, no reason or anything. And it appears that it's a year old. It's from last year because they said they said to Alan that he's 44 years old. And if it's his real age, he's not 44. What? <laughs> they said Alan was 44 years old in the show and his real age is not 44. What, what does she mean his real age? Do you mean Spader's age? I don't know. Spader's like 45, 46. But what does she mean his real age is not 40? Like, what a thing to complain about. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I'm being a little hard on her, but, you know, she was pretty... Stickler for detail. She's just a stickler for detail. Stickler for detail. Okay. But now we got a nice call. This uh, particular caller really liked Michael McKean, who played Dwight Biddle. Hi, this is Karen O'Shea calling from Palatine, Illinois. I happen to like the episode truly rattling deeply. I thought that Michael McCann did a great job playing Dwight Bill. If he had played it too far out, it would have been his situation would not have been rooted in reality. I think he should get a, get an Emmy nomination for his performance as well as Susan Rutan, who played Jeannie. This is the second time seeing Boston Legal, and I hope they don't ignore this show show next time in the, at the Emmy. Consider there is a lot of guest stars whose talents have been showcased on the show. I hope that Michael will get a chance. Thank you. Well, I like what she said, that um, maybe Michael and Susan Rutan will get nominated for the guest star on an episode of Drama for an Emmy. Yeah. David E. Kelly has the history of that on this show. Oh, Although, yeah. first season of Boston Legal didn't see anyone nominated, but you never know. Yeah, that was weird. I was, I mean, they had a lot of people, <laughs> but but I they didn't see it in there. You're right. But Susan Rutan, who played Jeannie Biddle, I think we mentioned this last week, She's oh, she's been nominated for like five, six Emmys and Golden Globes. Um, I think she won... One that wasn't an Emmy or Gold Globe, but it was she did one win an award for her role in L.A. Law. So thank yeah. you very much for that call. Uh, one person did call with a she wanted to quick get in a word about witches of mass destruction, which was the previous week's show. But we'll let her talk because, as you may have remembered, I don't know if you listened, Kyle, even though you were gone. Uh, we had a lot of calls about the anti-war, the, you know, the don't don't disparage the troops, don't disparage our commander in chief, that kind of situation. Well, this caller has a unique perspective because she's very liberal now, but she grew up Catholic and conservative, and you know, she I think took a fair and balanced <laughs> approach. Hey, I just wanted to say that I really appreciated your show on the witches of mass destruction. I can say that people are really flying off the handle on this, and I can say that because. Although I am a liberal, I was raised Catholic and in an incredibly conservative family. My family also serves in the armed forces. I support the soldiers, not necessarily the war. And just because you're against the war doesn't mean that you don't honor the people who serve in it. And I hate everyone who immediately lumps people into one group. I think that is the most offensive thing ever. And it's so completely un-American. Thank you for showing your podcast. I appreciate it. And I'm, I apologize on behalf of the conservatives that jumped down your throat. I know they had the best intentions. They just can't hear what they don't agree with. Thank you. And, you know, I had to play that because here's the one who actually said, and thanks for the podcast. <laughs> we, that in there. We like to hear that, don't we, Kyle? We do. Yeah, you guys can, like, praise us, you know. From listening we'll, to, we'll be humble, but we like to hear it anyway. We do. We, 
<laughs> we do. We like to be stroked. I uh, <laughs> wanted to d- dip into some of the emails received. I like this one from Kate Bannister. She said, uh, could Alan's new assistant, that's Melissa, have been a plant by Blinky? <laughs> Remember Blinky? Yeah. <laughs> Blinky from the sexual harassment. She's the lawyer to go to. She says, I remember Blinky frantically making notes about Alan when Alan was referenced in Lori's sexual harassment interview. Of course, if she were a plant, then she would probably not have given him the fair warning of making, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that she's going she's gonna to have him written up. I don't think so, but. Oh, also, a couple comments from our um, comment board. We don't really have a message board. I'm still thinking about launching that thing. I just, uh, I just. I hate to see what happened over at ABC's message board happen. Right. So we have a little comment thread right above recent news, and we heard from Kate. She says, I love Boston Legal. It's pretty much the only thing I watch. Spader and Shatner are phenomenal. But the whole liberal bias issue is ridiculous. With the mainstream media, everything has to be red or blue. There are more than two colors in the spectrum. Hopefully, Alan's speech at least got some people thinking about how horrific this war on terror really is. I can't believe some of the calls that were played on the most recent podcast. Dana, you've got nerves of steel. Thanks for the great site and the awesome podcast. Ooh, another one. Thank you. Two in one show. I love it. Also, we heard from Jack. Jack left a comment and said, the show's become a bit far-fetched, i.e. Denny Crane shooting a client and not receiving any punishment. Well, you know, that was, he got a contempt, right? He did, but that wasn't for shooting Oh, him. insulting That's for Harvey calling Cooper. the judge a douchebag. <laughs> Look at you with the douchebag and the, the A word. <laughs> well, I figure one of us has to use the foul language. All right. And I'll, well, it might as well be me. Step up to the plate. <laughs> but having said that, I see this going on with what Jack said. Having said that, I still enjoy the program. Look forward to it every week. The political slant can be tough to take. But remember, folks, this is entertainment. Now, that's the right attitude. You may it not is. agree with the politics. You may not want it on your TV programming. You want to may watch it on the news only, which, frankly, why can't it? It's, it's our everyday lives. Why can't, it be, why can't we be educated on our primetime entertainment shows as well? Infotainment. Infotainment. Docudramedy. <laughs> <laughs> so we hope to hear from more of you. And uh, like I said, it's, if you like the podcast, let us know. And if you... Want to tell us what you think is a, a good guest actor to come up or some ideas you have for storylines? Hey, we don't have any connection to David E. Kelly. We can't make him do anything. But, you know, you never know. If they listen, they might like it. Who knows? Hopefully they do. Tell a friend about Boston Legal Tuesdays. Tell them to tune in at 10 o'clock. Oh, there's something interesting. Um, did you notice this? I think Threshold is airing. They're, CBS is playing games. <laughs> They're moving Threshold to be opposite, at least once, I don't know if it's going to be ongoing, opposite Boston Legal instead of close to home. Threshold's usually on Friday night after Ghost Whisper, and they swapped it. So close to home was on Friday night. Friday night. And they swapped. Probably because close to the home has been being handled by Boston Legal exactly. every week. They thought maybe they could counter-program with the whole well, lawyer the sci-fi show. sci-fi Threshold versus, you know, the lawyer Boston Legal. Yeah, so I—I I mean, I've—I now watch—I finally watched my first close to home because it wasn't opposite Boston Legal, and right. and I've been watching Threshold, and I interviewed all the people. You know, I interviewed the two stars of Close to Home and, and Charles Dutton from Threshold, and so you know, my loyalties are there too. It's CBS. Why do you have to do battle with ABC? Can't we all just get along? So anyway, it's all about the money. <laughs> it's all about. It's a business. It is it a is. business. And speaking of business, goodbye. I will miss you, Arrested Development. Boston Legal Tuesdays, 10 o'clock, season two of um, episode eight coming up. What's the name of that? 
Half fat jungle. Thank you very much, You're Kyle. You're very welcome. I'll curse for you anytime. <laughs> Kyle, you've been great. We uh, look forward to more of your Good, Bad, and the Ugly and everything next week. I'll be here. Oh, and until next time, remember. We look good, right? Oh, we look great. In fact, a study show that everybody watches Boston Legal does look 10 years younger. <laughs> I never thought a guy could cry Till you made it with the